Well, I wish you would have looked at the email because it took 30 years for us to get asked up here, which I'm still a little bitter about. <laughs> Eric Thomas and I went to seminary together in the 90s, and, and he started, I don't know if you guys know Eric, Eric's been in a fixture up here for decades, which is part of the reason why I'm jealous, because he started telling me about it in the 90s, and he was telling me about how great Hume Lake was, I'm like, oh, I'd really get, like to get to do that someday, so we got to do it a few years ago, and it's been, really has just been a pleasure for us to be here, I meant what I said this morning, how many of you were here this morning, by the way, yeah, you guys are the two times a day crowd, that's good. <laughs> So it's been wonderful for us to be up here. I love to open up the Word with people that want to get into the Word, think about it, talk about it, be challenged by it. I'm constantly being challenged myself uh, as I continue to try to stay on this path. I mean, we all live in the same kind of world, even though my world in Ohio might be way different than your world in California. It still is the same challenges to walking by faith, isn't it? So I appreciate being with people that are trying to figure out how to do that and want to keep you know, sharpening themselves. I had written down to myself some time ago that I think it's fair to argue, see if you agree with this or not, that never, and I don't usually like making these kind of dramatic statements, but I think this is true, that never in the history of, of humans has Psalm 4610 been more relevant. You know what Psalm 4610 is? Be still and know that I'm God. And the, the reason why I think there might not have been any other time that was, where, where that was as important. It's just because of the technological age that we live in and because of the opportunity that we have to be just bombarded by so many different voices and so many different ideas and so many different kinds of content, so many different crowds, like we talked about this morning. And so as simple as it is, again, it's kind of nestled away there in, in the 46th Psalm, but stop, be still, Cut yourself off, right, from all the external noise and know that I'm God. Do what you need to do to keep, to keep being reminded. Even when we talked about Bartimaeus this morning, I just think it's so interesting that he obviously had heard enough in some way. He had heard the stories about him in some way that it made a difference inside his soul. Well, now we, we have this, and we also have tons of ways of hearing this, to be reminded of who Jesus was and is, and just this, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, the story of redemption, and I just have to keep coming back to it over and over again. And I say that because I work with people that are in ministry, and it's just, it's so easy to, it can be really easy to do a lot of Jesus stuff. It can be easy to go to church twice on Sunday, and then not really walk with Jesus during the week. Like, it's easy to do that, isn't it? You can just get caught up in stuff. And so to just be reminded of our need to keep stopping and being reminded of the stories. So we're talking about crowds, and I just want to throw a couple more things out that I didn't get to talk about this morning because I've been swimming in these waters. There's a book out there called The Madness of Crowds. Maybe some of you have heard of it. In the intro, he says, we're going through a great crowd derangement. In public and in private, both online and off, people are behaving in ways that are increasingly irrational, feverish, herd-like, and simply unpleasant. I read another book called The Delusions of Crowds, Why People Go Mad in Groups, and he talked about the contagious nature of human irrationality. And I'm, this just, it's just kind of become my thing. 
lately is just paying attention to the effect that groups of people have. And I'll just say this, on my thinking, I like thinking about it as a minister, about how groups affect our thinking, but I'm always personalizing it and just saying, how am I being impacted by this piece of news or that piece of news? Or even, and Eric and I were talking about this earlier, even different groups and coalitions that rise up within a church congregation, you know, are not all the time lining themselves up with God's word and whatever it is that they become feverish about. And so just thinking about what am I subjecting myself to and allowing myself to be exposed to. There was a, 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 cha, a, a verse in Exodus, and I'm just set, saying all this just as a as bonus from things that I didn't get to say this morning that I've been thinking about for weeks, and so you're going to hear them, okay? <laughs> I'm getting these out before we get into a passage here. But I've been doing this reading plan uh, with some guy friends of mine. And so we were in Exodus a month or two ago. And there was this passage in Exodus 23, verses 1 through 3. This is a good one to write down if you want to keep thinking about these things. It says, uh, do not spread false reports. And you know, Exodus 20, 23, Exodus 20 up through 32 God is giving Moses just the law and the way to live and kind of the path to be on. So this is God saying, don't spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. It's interesting, we get that. But then he throws this in. And do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. Which I just think is so interesting. And what he's saying is, right, don't, don't just go along with, with the, the, the popular voice of the crowd like we've been talking about. But the flip side of that is also don't, don't pervert justice by taking the side of a poor person just because they're poor. Do right. Figure out what the right path is and stay on it. So, all of that has led me then to look at different passages where the crowd has affected, positively or negatively, outcomes that take place in Scripture. So we're going to look at a passage tonight. It's interesting because Jason just prayed about beautiful passages. I think we're going to look at one of the most heinous passages of Scripture, one of the worst passages. In fact, I'm glad there's no kids in here because it's like not a vacation Bible school passage. Is there, is there one? Yeah, she doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> she won't get this. This might be the only time she ever hears this passage, though. In Mark chapter 6, so open up your Bibles if you've got them two times on a Sunday church, people. I'll bet you've got a Bible or something that you can look at or look at with each other. I think it's maybe one of the most disturbing passages in the whole Bible. And that might even be my next series that I try to put together is disturbing, disturbing Bible passages. This would be, this would be at the top of my list. Mark 6. Let me see where I want to start this, actually. Verse 14. We're going to talk about the death of John the Baptist. Okay? So almost the entire uh, ministry 
of Jesus is shrouded by the death of John the Baptist. I had forgotten some of this as I started digging into this passage a little bit. You know, John the Baptist is the man. For a couple of years, he is the one, right? He's the forerunner who's kind of laying the groundwork for Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, to come and begin his, his ministry. And uh, there's this moment where all of a sudden he just disappears. He baptizes Jesus. He commissions him into ministry. And then he just kind of falls away. And Jesus takes over, and the story, becomes, story starts to become all about Jesus. Well, what happens to John? Well, we know he winds up getting arrested. And look down here. It says, again, I keep losing my place here. Okay, well, in verse 7, Jesus sends out the apostles. He calls the 12, begins to send them out two by two, giving them authority over unclean spirits, charging them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you, until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Okay, so he sends out these guys into ministry. So this message is starting to, to spread. So they went out and proclaimed that people, what is the message? They should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so they're doing this in the Roman Empire. And it says in verse 14 that King Herod heard of it because Jesus' name had become known. And yeah, I guess I wish we had time to dig in more of this, but there's a reason why the Roman Empire is called an empire. I mean, the Romans were very serious about ruling the world. And anything that posed itself as a threat, they were very quick to snuff out. You know, just, just from history, they, they, they kind of ruled with this iron fist, and they were quick to get rid of anything that was going to threaten the rule. I guess that was probably true anywhere in the world. Anytime uh, uh, a country was able to get control of an area, they were going to try to protect that. Right? So the Romans were fierce about that. So here's this message that's starting to scatter, that's starting to create commotion, and it bothers the rulers. It bothers anybody that's got any power because they don't want anything that's going to mess with that. Right? We get that. So King Herod hears about it because Jesus' name is starting to become known. And get this. Let's, let's read this. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. They're trying to figure out who Jesus is. John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, nope, it's Elijah, who is one of the greatest prophets that they knew of. Others said, no, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. So ironic. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Okay, so just like we did this morning, just to set the table, and then I, I want to kind of dig into two, two things for us to think about 
that come out of what happened to John the Baptist, okay? But first, let's just set the table with who the characters are. And I don't know when the last time was that you did a, a study on John the Baptist, but it's just good to be reminded of who he was and what he was about. I mean, he was, he was heralded as a great man. Remember in Luke, let's, in fact, let's look at this, Luke chapter 1. While we're here, hold your place in Mark, and let's just look over in Luke. Just in case you haven't visited this in a while. Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. This is when the angel came and announced to Zachariah and Elizabeth that they were going to have a son. It says, the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you'll have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he'll be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And get this, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What an, what an amazing announcement that would be to find out you're going to have a kid, and that's going to be his biography. My kids are morons, Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know. We, we celebrate any moment where we see any semblance of humanity in them and clarity of thought. You know what I'm saying? Our son's working here. This son has actually been some great moments with him already. But, you know, but, and he gets this, and this is what your kid's going to be, okay? The Holy Spirit will be in from the get-go. He'll be like Elijah. People will rejoice that he exists. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Amazing birth announcement. So very cool. Jesus said, among those born of women, remember, what did he say? None were more important than John the Baptist. No one was greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said that. The people held him to be a prophet. And yet he, when we, when we heard from John the Baptist, he had this amazing humility to him. And we talked about entitlement this morning. That couldn't have been further from, from how John saw himself. He was the one that was constantly saying, and he had every reason as, as his own popularity was increasing, he could have grabbed onto that and held onto it. And he said, no, when Jesus actually arrived, he said, he must increase and I need to decrease. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. What kind of man is that? that it's hard to find a man or a woman that operates like that when they're right on the precipice of, of having great power in the world. But that was John. He's this transitional figure. We know that, but he's hugely influential. So a couple more things, and then we'll stop on John. Uh, in, in Acts 18, 24, and 25, when Apollos comes on the scene, and, and they, the apostles bump into him, he says he only knows the baptism of John. So even years after Jesus has been gone, John's ministry is actually the one that a lot of people who are devout are still grabbing onto, whatever that ministry was, and we don't know that much about it. It's about repentance, but he must have been teaching other things, because Apollos said, all I know about is this, the, the baptism of John, and he had to be enlightened. Uh, what else? Well, we'll leave it at that. There's another passage in Acts 19 where Paul runs into some Ephesians who are saying the same thing. All we know is the baptism of John. So he's a strange but good man. He's strange because all prophets are a little bit weird, right? They're separated and they're, 
they're, they're calling people to something that usually other people are not calling people to. But he's a good man. Herod, on the other hand, who's a key figure in here, he's a, from an evil family line. I mean, it's interesting when you look up Herod in a, in a concordance, anytime the name Herod, and there's like three or four different Herods that show up in the scriptures, they're always evil. They're just passing on wickedness. It's almost like they're trying to outdo each other when it comes to wickedness. His dad is the one that killed all the firstborn males, which again, sometimes I think we just pass over that in the Christmas season and don't think about just what a heinous moment that would be. And we can't even imagine it as Americans where the politicians would put down a decree that would, that would murder our kids, okay? But that was what his dad was known for. He inherited a ton of his father's evil qualities, but only part of his kingdom. So Herod Sr. divided out his kingdom, and there's a ton of history to this. He went back and forth in his will about who was going to get what. And, and he only gave a small portion to Herod Antipas, who's the one we're looking at today, just gave a small portion. He was going to be head over Galilee, which is why John the Baptist and he intersect one another in this other area called Perea. Okay, so he's already a little bit salty that he's not the full heir of, of his father's kingdom. That bugs him from the beginning. And it turns him into a very small and, and insecure man. He's super power hungry. He's constantly vying for position in the empire. Again, you could go look all this up. There's some, some great stuff written about his history of just being a jerk. He lies. He's treasonous. He's immoral. He's shrewd, and he's a lover of luxury. So one of the good things that he ends up doing is just building lots of palaces for himself and big buildings. In fact, maybe some of you have been to Israel before. The, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem is a remnant from one of the palaces that he had built. So he did some nice things in that regard, but he was only doing it to fill up his own insecurity, okay, and trying to establish himself. And then you've got Herodias, who seems like just the perfect match for him. She couldn't have been a more wicked woman. She leaves his brother. They meet each other on a trip, Her, uh, Herod and Herodias do, and, and they start to have an affair with one another. He, she sends her daughter in to do a strip club dance. Okay, we're going to see that in a minute. Steals the daughter's reward for it can have literally anything she wants and asks to have his head, which we're going to look at in a second. So just, we were talking about this at dinner. <laughs> That's terrible. That's what you do at Hume Lake, right? Those are the conversations you have. I mean, do you have any friends? Do you have any female friends? Yeah, I'm saying this seriously. You had female friends that have had affairs and have maybe cheated and ran around. I do. But I've never had a female friend who, when she got called out for it, had the power to say, you know what? I want that person killed. And that was her response. I don't even know if I know anybody like that. And then here's how we're going to do it. I want you to cut his head off and bring it to me. You got any friends like that? So my wife was justifying it somehow at dinner, which I just thought that really concerned me a little bit. <laughs> She's like, well, they didn't have bullets, and there's other ways to execute. Like, you really had to do that, and she needed to see it to prove it. And it's like, are you defending her? <laughs> Whatever is what I said. It's really horrible that 
you know, and I don't know people like this that would, that would do that. We're going to kill him, and that's what I want you to do. I want you to cut his head off and bring it to me. So she's a horrible person. And she is to John the Baptist what Jezebel was to Elijah. She's brash and conniving and brazen and shameless and defiant. And she's committed to herself and her own evil intentions, okay? So you've got this setup here of just good versus evil, in a sense, okay? And this is important for where, where we're going and what we want to think about, okay? So those are the characters. Let's, read, let's just read the rest of the story to remind ourselves again of what happens here. Oh, and it's interesting that, that, uh, that Herod put, puts John in prison to protect him. Not so much to punish him. I mean, that's part of it, but he's put him in prison to protect him. He wants him to be quiet because he's causing a ruckus, okay, and drawing attention to the fact that he has stolen his brother's wife. Oh, by the way, Herodias is actually Herod's niece, and I won't even try to get in. I'm still not even sure I understand what happened in the family tree that brought that about. So it's actually incestuous and it's adulterous. It's like a double whammy. TMZ wouldn't even know what to do with this. It's like really, it's just bad. So she wants him to be quiet, and Herod's good with that too. But she also wants him dead, and Herod doesn't want him to die because he's perplexed by him and because he knows the people fear him or they, they respect him, you know. So just as a shrewd politician, he's trying to figure out, how do I have my cake and eat it too? So he puts him in prison. Now let's look at verse 21. It says, An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. So again, what we're talking about here is all, it's like a stag party that they're having. Herod, again, insecure man, constantly trying to bring in big wigs to entertain them so that he can be the big shot. They're drinking a ton. It's, it's, um, there's a lot of sexuality. It's a stag party. Herodias sends her daughter in again. Who, who does that? Since her daughter in, she wasn't doing a ballet, okay? She's doing something much more seductive. When Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the, girl, to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? And Herodias said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Get this. This is why this, this whole segment stood out to me in the whole crowd thing. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. You know, one of the reasons why this bothers me so much every time I read it is just that, like, I get guys, guys get drunk and they do stupid things, right? I've been, again, I come from a very non-Christian background in my past. I've been around some weird parties before. Maybe some of you have too. So I'm not shocked by the party. But I'm really, really bothered, to, as I stand here right now thinking about it, that Herod had the opportunity to say, ah, try again. Let's do another one. Okay? And the only reason that he didn't is because of the people that were sitting in the room. And he didn't want to embarrass himself in front of them. It just really bothers me uh, that, that that was ultimately what caused him to go move forward with this. 
Verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and he beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. Just a, a gruesome, a gruesome idea. When John's disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, I remember uh, I became a Christian back in 1988, so it has been a long time now. But I do still remember the first times that I had gotten exposed to this segment of Scripture. And I, I can remember reading this and expecting that it was going to change at some point in the midst of reading it. Like, I didn't know what was going to happen because I'd never heard it before. And, and I just, you know, rem remembered thinking so somewhere in this something good is going to happen or God's going to intervene or surely this isn't going to finish the way it finishes. Or when it finished that way, I kept waiting for there to be sort of a, um, what do you call it in music when it comes back around again, a coda or, or, or something. What's the right word for that? I don't know. But, but give, give me some resolution to it. And it never comes up again. That's just the end of the story for John the Baptist. So a couple of things bother me about this. And I want to put them in front of us with the time that we have left. I want you to think about it with me. One of the questions that I think rises up out of this, and again, even just searching for why I'm thinking about why is this even in here except to give the history of what happened to him. It's a really long explanation. But why didn't John the Baptist just preach the gospel instead of meddling in this politician's life? That's one of the things that, that I ask and that bothers me a little bit about this. And I think about if John were alive today and he did the kind of thing that he did, what, what would the criticisms be of it? You know, one of the things that people would say in ministry, you'd read this in Christianity Today or you'd see it on Christian Twitter, is that he should just stay out of politics. He didn't have any business, you know, raising his voice against this politician. Like, that wasn't your business. Just stick to the gospel. Because when you do that, that turns into mission drift. So I work for, uh, for Crew. Are any of you familiar with Crew or you've spent any time in Crew? Athletes in Action and Family Life are, are sub-ministries of the large organization of Campus Crusade for Christ, is what it used to be called. And, and Bill Bright, who was the founder and longtime president, made a decision a long time ago to say... None of our staff ministers are to get involved in politics at all. When you're on a college campus, you don't talk about politics. You stick to the gospel. That's what you're there to do as a minister of Jesus Christ. Because it will get you off in other things that you're not supposed to be about. So I could totally see John the Baptist being criticized for that. Maybe some people would say, you know what, you should have been seeking, John should have been seeking to build a bridge so that he could have a better ministry with Herod. Herod already liked him. Why would he instead burn the bridge by calling out? I mean, there's all kinds of evil behavior that Herod has going on. Why would he just call him out about the, the, um, the affair? You should have been building a bridge to him so that you could have a more inner circle ministry. Others would be saying, don't offend anyone. Let people make their own choices and just let God judge. That's another critique that I'm sure would rise up today. Others would say it's a good idea to speak truth to power, just not to the point of death. Like you don't, 
Like you got to know where the line is at so you don't get yourself killed. Because guess what happens once you get yourself killed to your ministry? Yeah, it ends. So you got to be really careful about that. I could just see all the critics coming out. Are you with me on this? I mean, people would have all kinds of, of, uh, of bombs they would be throwing in John the Baptist's direction for speaking out about this. So here's what I had written to myself a while back. This is where all the analysis and critique of other people's ministry and other people's choices, here's where I want you to kind of think practically for yourself. The critique of other people's ministries and their choices in those ministries, this is where it goes wrong, is that I have no idea what God wants for or from this person in their context at this moment. I have no idea... And we, now we live in an age where we feel like we can criticize anything and sort of run our mouths about anything, right? I have no idea what it is that God wants this person to do in this moment, in this context, that may be even very different than what he would want from me in this situation. There were a lot of different ministers at the time we know that because we had already read that there's guys going door to door, right? There's people that are already doing ministry in Jesus' name. Nobody else called him out. You know what's super interesting? Jesus didn't call him out. Think about that. Jesus was alive at the same time, saw all the same stuff going on, assuredly knew that Herod was doing what he did. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't make a point of calling him out. But John the Baptist did. And so, um, responsible Christians choose their battles. They're going to have some, but not every. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Good one to write down. I haven't been to this verse in a long time. Well, I'm having a hard time moving in my Bible today. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 says, well, let me just give you a little bit of context so it'll make some sense. You can probably see in your Bible there, the whole beginning of that chapter, Paul's talking about principles for marriage. And one of the concerns that people had is, well, should, should we stay single? Uh, should we um, not be married anymore, right? People are confused now that we're doing the Jesus thing. Like, what does this mean for us as married people or as single people? And Paul says, just, it's better if you're single, because then you can devote all yourself to, to this ministry. But if you're married, that's not a bad thing either. But be fully married. If you're going to be married, be fully married. If you're going to be single, be fully single. And on the back end of this, he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, or implication, her, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Let me read it again. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is going to be my rule in all the churches. Uh, let's look at one more passage in James, James chapter 4. wasn't sure if I want to do this or not, but let's do it. James chapter 4. 
verse 17, and this is on the back end of James saying, don't be arrogant and thinking that you're even going to have a tomorrow. Don't, don't plan as though you have tomorrow. You have today. And in today, this is what he says in verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Whoever knows the right thing to do in this day and doesn't do it to him, it's sin. So one of the things that I just feel very confronted about from this whole John the Baptist thing and wanted, you know, for the people that would criticize or ask why is it that he didn't just stick to the, to, to the, to the gospel is just recognizing that everybody has a different call on their life. And it is going to look different in different situations for different people. And it may even look depending on what your spiritual gifting is, depending on how God has wired you, depending on the place that he's called you to, the vocational role that you're to play, the type of church that you're in, all of these factors wind up creating different contexts and different callings for what it is that he wants us to do. So I I will say this for myself. I realized a long time ago, and in fact, I still remember in my freshman year of college, I went to Kent State University. And let me just tell, tell you, this really quickly. At the beginning of the Iraq war, so this was early 90s, okay, I was in a journalism class, and there was a a news crew that came down from Canada that was interviewing journalism classes at Kent State, for whatever the reason was. And they were in my class this day. I had just become a Christian maybe, well, it must have been a year or two earlier, okay? And I had been growing like crazy and was, was just absorbing God's word. And, and I've always been a person who like to think about culture, like I said this morning. So I had spent a lot of time with apologetics people and had thought very much about why things were the way they were in the world. Well, they came into my classroom, and one of their questions to us was about the war was, what do you think it is that's wrong with the world that creates a need or a desire for, for nations to go to war with each other? And I can remember sitting in the back of the classroom and my heart started to beat in my chest and my hands started to get sweaty. I started to feel like I was going to throw up. Uh, You know this feeling? When I knew, I literally, I think I'd even maybe even just had this conversation with somebody else. And what was coming into my mind was the the problem of sin and the problem of brokenness and right all these things that were just kind of new categories to me as Christians, but that were obviously the reason why people want to destroy one another. And even the, the doctrine of Satan, okay? Like I had all this stuff that I wanted to say. And I sat there sweating, nauseous, heart beating out of my chest. And there was a silence at that question and nobody answered it and neither did I. And I remember when they left, I felt this, this wave of conviction, again, whatever that feeling is, guilt, very, very disturbed because, and I, and I actually made a commitment in that moment, as much as it could possibly depend on me and Lord, give me the courage next time to step into it. I never want to let that ever happen again. And in God's grace, he kept giving me new opportunities, actually, to step into moments like that and have something to say. But here's the thing. There were other Christians in the classroom as well. I know that God's call on my life actually has a teaching or a, you know, a prophecy in the way we talk about that in the New Testament, an exhortation edge to it. And I don't need to give you all the different examples of how I know that, but you know that God has wired you in a certain way. He's given you certain spiritual gifts. He's, he's given you a certain personality. He's given you a certain wiring for you to play a certain role in situations. 
And one of the roles that I knew that I was supposed to play was to speak out in moments like that. Some of you are supposed to step into roles where mercy is required or there's a, a compassion that's desired that I think is different even than what he's called me to be a part of. But the point is, do you, I say you and all you are older people, normally when I think about these things, I think about it for college-age students, but it's still worth saying, do you know, do you know how it is that God has wired you and what are the type of situations that you're here to step into? It doesn't matter what everybody else, I'm not, I'm not responsible for whether John the Baptist should or shouldn't have said anything. I'm responsible to make sure that I know what God's will is for me in this moment, in this day, and that I respond to it. And I don't want to say that, you know, I think, well, how do you know what that is? And it's the usual stuff. You get up every day and you walk with God. You stay, you do things that keep you in his word you do things, maybe even more importantly, that cause you to keep talking to him and allowing him to talk to you, to me, so that I know what it is that I'm supposed to do in a given moment. That's one of the things that, that kind of jumped out at me. What, what role has God wired me to play in the lives of people, and how do I best live that out in different situations? I wonder if John the Baptist regretted saying something about their relationship. I hope he didn't. I think he was supposed to be the man to do it. What doesn't make sense to me, though, is what ended up happening to him. So here's the second thing that I want us to think about, and then we'll stop, okay, in this passage. And that's this. Is God less faithful to John the Baptist than he was to Daniel and his friends, who I know is being talked about this week over in Ponderosa? You know what happened with Daniel? Daniel got rescued. Like all throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel's getting rescued. Is he, more, is he less faithful to John the Baptist than he was to Peter and John? Who, when they got locked up in prison in the book of Acts, there was a, a miraculous intervention that took place where the doors came and opened and they escaped. Why didn't that happen for John the Baptist? Is that... Does that bother you at all? That bothers me a little bit. That I don't know what's going on with that. I'm expecting there to be some kind of a rescue and it doesn't happen. <sighs> Read this the other day. Somebody wrote, if I do what God calls me to do, he said, this is what I think most people think. If I do what God calls me to do, then he's going to bless me with a good life material prosperity to at least some degree, decent physical health, few troubles. We say that we don't believe in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but, and yet we so often live and pray according to it. Get this. We expect that if we're good to God, then he'll be good to us, and we get to define what good is. And I'm bothered by that because I like, I'd like to think that I've matured in my thinking and my theology beyond expecting that God is always going to do good for me. But even as a parent, I feel this pretty intensely, that if I do the right things, if I pray the right way, if I operate the right way as a father in my kids' lives, I'd like to expect or be able to count on a positive result. And I see some of you smiling out there right now. Yeah, you don't always get that right? It doesn't work that way. So what ends up happening in too many of our circles, 
and again, I don't think there's anything wrong with this, but we talk about God's faithfulness, and we celebrate when he comes through, and he does things where the deliverance takes place, and we celebrate his faithfulness, and I love being a part of those moments, but there's always a part of me that says, is God any less faithful if we didn't get this same deliverance? I mean, we need to ask ourselves that. We had one of our best friends it was so interesting. This happened at the same time, about five, six years ago. Two of our female friends that we were super close to both got brain, well, one had a brain tumor and the other had a cancer, ovarian cancer. And I don't even want my Amy just, that's my wife, Amy, right there. She's tried to sneak in. I told him you were defending Herodias <laughs> earlier, so you're going to have to deal with that. Susie was supposed to die within a few months with the brain tumor. Elizabeth actually beat the cancer, and it went away. We were actually much, much closer to Elizabeth, as it turns out. Just relationally, we were. And so we were expecting Susie to die. We were excited that Elizabeth beat the cancer. Well, it turned out now that Susie has lived. Actually, it's been seven or eight years, I think, since. Elizabeth beat the cancer. It came back and killed her three years ago. Okay? that has sent a ripple through our friend network that we're still recovering from. Didn't make any sense at all to us. I don't know, I don't know how much more of this I want to put on a recording. This person um, was a very frustrating person, a very self-centered person, was, was somebody that was sometimes difficult to like, okay? One of our friends, you have friends like that. This person was serving the poor, was a missionary to China, and I could just go on and on with what Elizabeth was doing. Didn't make any sense. It still doesn't make any sense. When you have prayers for people's marriages, and sometimes there's a reconciliation, and sometimes they still wind up getting divorced. It just doesn't make any sense. Uh, we've had friends that are overseas, and we pray for them. And sometimes there's this, you know, they're in persecuted countries. Sometimes there's this miraculous thing that happens where doors open up, and they actually become part of administrations, national administrations. And they get this inroad, and we talk about how faithful God is in those moments when that happens. And we've had other friends who spent their whole lives in certain countries that were just, they were just thrown out. And their whole ministry just kind of disappeared to them. And, and now they're not even sure exactly what it is that they're supposed to do. And again, I ask, is God any less faithful in that moment to that couple? Is he any less faithful to Elizabeth and Steve, now that Elizabeth's life was taken, than he is when he actually provides the miracle? It's a lot harder to preach or teach the moments when he doesn't come through at a vacation Bible school but here's the reality. Sometimes when you take a stand because of Christian justice or because of Jesus or because of righteousness, sometimes an angel will come and open the gates to the prison. Sometimes there will be a pre-incarnate Jesus that meets you in the fire, like what happens with Daniel's friends. We're going to talk about this probably in a couple days this week. But sometimes you get your head cut off and it gets brought on a platter and the story just ends. And God's not any less faithful. Again, the corrective for me and, and maybe for us is just to be reminded that God's not any less faithful when it doesn't turn out the way that we thought that it was going to. He's not. 
We don't understand how it all fits together. And even think about this. It doesn't make any sense even to this day what happened with John the Baptist. You know what, what's interesting? What happens with Herod is Herodias's, no, Herod's ex-wife's dad never gets over the fact that Herod divorced his daughter and he comes and ransacks him a few years into the future. So Herod actually gets some consequence for his, his divorcing behavior, okay? But that still doesn't make any sense for why it is that John the Baptist should get his head cut off. Except that God has ways, you know, you know this, right? God has his ways that we don't understand. And so am I willing to submit to that even if it doesn't go the way that I want it to go? I'm going to stop because it's, it's 8 o'clock. You know, here's what's interesting about Herod. I, I will, I'll stop just with this thought. Because this is disturbing to me too. Herod had a choice he could have set John the Baptist free. You know, he, he has another opportunity. He shows up again. You know, when, when we hear about Herod again, is it, yeah, it's in Jesus' trial. And Jesus is sent to him, and Herod is hoping that he'll do a miracle or something. Again, he just sort of wants to be entertained by Jesus of Nazareth. And he's quizzing him, and it turns out that he mocks him, and he lets other guys mock him, and he's the one that dresses Jesus up as, a, as, as a, a royal and, and sends him out. So he has this other opportunity now to do right. He could have learned from what happened with John the Baptist, which I think he was haunted by a little bit. He has a chance to set Jesus free, and instead he just digs his heels in even more and basically sends him to his death. It's not a vacation Bible school story, is it? But I look back at it and I say, good for you, John the Baptist. Good for you for fulfilling your ministry, even if it doesn't make sense to us. Even if your end didn't make sense, you stood in God's will and did what you were called to do. And may we be people who figure that out in all of our different ages and all the different seasons that we're in in life to keep asking God, what is it that you want from me today? What is it that you want me to step into? Okay? So that I can fill, fulfill your purpose for me on this earth. What do I need to step into? And can I just trust you for the results of it, even if it ends up not looking the way I expect it to look? That's my prayer as I come out of this passage. So, will somebody pray for us as we close here tonight? You two times a Sunday church attenders. Do you have a final prayer in you for us? That some of this might stick to us? Thank you.